Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're very fortunate to have Michelle Bulo from Bellatuno. Um, I got through it. Um, join us today. Um, Michelle was introduced to me probably a month ago by her, her husband that many of us know, Todd Bulow. Um, we sat down and had coffee. She's got a fantastic story of a company that she started um, almost 13 years ago, or I guess it has That's been 13 right. years. Um, it's a story that we should know more about, and so I'm excited about bringing that out. Uh, Juan Garcon did a great write-up this summer and Start Charlotte on it. Um, so we'll expand on that a little bit. So, Michelle, thanks so much for carving out some time with me this morning to talk about your company. I'm really excited about the opportunity. So I told you when we met a couple months ago or a month ago for um, for coffee that I'd start off really easy. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off saying a sentence. Okay. And I want you to finish that sentence for me. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. We are. Penn State. <laughs> All right. There we go. Oh, that was easy. That was a softball. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I figured we'd get started off there. So anyways, it's good to have some Penn State folks um, in, um, on the podcast for sure. Good people. Um, so let's just dive straight into it. What is Bellatuno? Bellatuno is actually a give back brand that happens to make baby accessories. Okay. Um, we pride ourselves in making really on-trend fun products that makes mom's life easier. Um, babies, babies really love to use our products. We have teethers and pacifier clips and things to make their life easier too. But at the end of the day, it's really about the work that it allows us to do in the community and on a national level. Okay. Um, what work does it allow you to do in the community and on a national level? What do you do? What's the give back aspect? So, um, about three years ago, we started a program where for every single product we sell, we give one meal to one child in America. Okay. And that is in all 50 states, and we've just reached a threshold of 1.5 million meals. Wow. Um, we partner with Feeding America mm-hmm. to do that, and, and they're a phenomenal philanthropic partner for us. But that's not how it started. You know, the road to get there started with some different charitable giving because I am excited to be able to say that we have never sold a product in those 13 years without giving back. Okay. It just hasn't always been meals. Okay. Awesome. So um, you grew up wanting to start a um, a baby's accessories business, right? Oh, always, yeah. always. No, that is not at all the case. This definitely chose me. Okay. At the time that I started Bellatuno, um, which is is a company that we manufacture overseas, and we work with sales reps to sell, and we work with key retailers and independent boutiques. Um, I knew nothing about manufacturing. I knew nothing about design. I actually didn't know anything about babies because <laughs> I was pregnant, so I wasn't even a mom at the time. So, no, that it was absolutely not my lifelong dream. So um, you were successful um, early on in your career, and then, and then Bella Tuna came about. So talk to us about um, you know, what brought it to life, so to speak. Yeah, so when I graduated from college, I went into 
what was at the time Big Five Consulting. And, um, and then I went on to run a brand strategy department at a local firm, and I was just... Local being here in Charlotte. In Charlotte. Okay, so you yeah, graduated Penn right. State, you moved to Charlotte because everybody moves to Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, if, if my husband was here, I moved because I followed a boy. Yeah, okay. Um, but I, it's just not the case. Um, kind of is. But anyways, it's one of those situations where I was climbing the corporate ladder, and I absolutely loved it. I just, I couldn't work hard enough. I couldn't put enough hours in. Um, I couldn't wait for my next review. Like, how am I doing? How can I do better? What more can I do? Give me yeah. more responsibilities. And I was on that kind of, that, that turning wheel of just, it was exciting. It was actually thrilling to me. And I don't know if many people can relate to that, but it, it really, it You traveled a fair amount, right? Oh, I did. I was in, um, I So maybe be... that's what it was. You're away from Todd. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes back. <laughs> um, you know, I would. I did tons of projects overseas. I did some in Switzerland and Puerto Rico. Oh, I was wow. in San Francisco a lot. Um, spent a good deal of time in D.C. I, it was everywhere. It was like almost a different city every week, and it was never the same project twice. And I just felt like I feel I felt like I was hitting my stride. Yeah. But at that time, um, my only sibling, my brother, was he was battling addiction. And um, so while I was going one path with my life, my brother was was in a completely on a completely different road. And um, older brother or younger brother? Older brother. Okay. He was three years older. And so at the age of thirty, he passed away. And um, we battled. Anybody who knows about addiction or or has it in their family knows that it's not just that addict battling this. It's it's the entire family. And so for 14 years, we all were in it together and the highs were so high. We're like, he's, he's going to make it through. Yeah. This, this is the time, this, this center worked, this program worked and the lows were just unbelievable valleys. And so at this time where I'm, I'm building my career and I'm traveling all over and I'm really, really getting a lot out of it. Um, he was in and out of rehab centers. And when he passed away, Everything that I was working so hard for just lost all its meaning. Uh, truly, like in the blink of an eye, I thought, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. I mean, I'm working to get raises. I'm, I'm, it's, it's meaningful work on some level for the economy and commerce and all that, but all of a sudden to me, yeah. it wasn't meaningful work. And so... Um, so you were 27. I was 27. And I, I said, I'm And you're still I'm 27. Done. That's exactly... Well, <laughs> 29. Okay. Um, I said, I'm done. You know, I'm done with this. And so I left my job, and I really didn't have a plan at all. But I knew at the moment that my brother died that my goal was to help as many families as I could not experience what we had. Mm -hmm. That was the entire purpose. I want to change family stories. I don't want people to go through with what, what we went through. Um, the 14 years leading up to his death and specifically his passing. Um, and so I just had this passion, but I didn't know how I was going to fulfill yep. this passion and help people. And so that was actually the launch of Bella Tuno in a weird way because I was pregnant at the time and I was a stay at home baby generator. <laughs> like I wasn't <laughs> a mom. I wasn't, I purely just was growing a baby yep. and staying at home and I was super depressed. So you stepped away when he passed away. I did. Um, um, 
you know, my, the company I was with was so good to me. I kept saying, I'm leaving. And they're like, no, you can't leave. Take more time. Yeah. And I said, no, I, this isn't what I'm going to do anymore. I won't come back. And they said, no, you need to take more time. You'll want this back. And we just had to have a really honest conversation after a few months that it, I couldn't keep wasting their time or their yeah. resources. And so I did step away, and I was doing um, literally absolutely nothing, which is not healthy for anyone. No. But knowing what I wanted to do, it's just hard to get there when you've gone through something so traumatic. So knowing that um, I was pregnant at the time and knowing that we had just gone from two salaries down to one salary, I, I couldn't just go buy whatever I wanted for, for my soon-to-be baby girl. So I started making things. Yeah. And my mom actually got me a sewing machine, and I think she just wanted me to have a reason to get up and try to do something. Do you still have the original sewing I machine? Do. Do you? I okay, do. I cool. do. And I'm so grateful that I haven't touched it in like <laughs> 12 years. Um, and so are all of our customers. So I started making little things. And I have always had a very, um, I guess, forward fashion sense on yeah. things. The ducks and the trucks and the gingham was never my, my jam. I always really liked things that pushed the envelope a little bit. And so that's what I put into baby things. I would pair very random fabrics with other very random fabrics and make typical baby products. Like yeah. pretty much burp claws and blankets because I couldn't make anything that didn't just have straight corners. So that's all I could do at the time. But Could, could you do straight corners? No, not okay. well. Yeah. Not well, but, I mean, it was my best, my best chance. And so I would give these products at baby showers, and my friends would come over to visit, and they'd say, I think you really have something here. And I said, I think you really just want me to leave the house. <laughs> you know, you, I, I appreciate that you're good friends, but this is just a burp cloth. Yeah, this thanks, is nothing fancy. Thanks you know? for the pat on the back. That's but, exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. So because they knew what you were going through too. I they mean, they did. Yeah. yeah, of course they did. Um, and I know they saw a huge change in me. I yeah. mean, I used to be just filled with confidence, and and I was just really happy, and I loved what my life looked like. And then it just screeched to a halt, yeah. and I think there was a big change there in me. So long story short, I was so sick of hearing them say, this is really something, and almost to prove to them, this is nothing, <laughs> just leave me to my sewing machine yeah. and my mistakes. Um, I went and I made appointments around Little Boutiques in Charlotte. How many? Eleven. Okay. And uh, the very first one I went to. Eleven in a week? It was like in a day. Yeah. I mean, I just pounded this out. I made these appointments. I, I really just wanted to be told there's no place for this. Go pick your life up and do what you sh whatever else yeah. you want to do. That's really what I wanted to be told. And uh, instead, 10 of the 11 said, this is awesome. I want everything you have. And I'm like, I don't have anything. <laughs> These yeah. are my samples. Yeah. And I remember this was, um, I think that this was in April. It was. And I was like, well, I could give you a delivery date of maybe July because I knew how bad I was at this. And I knew to make what they needed, I would have to really practice, get better, go through some, some damages, that kind of thing. And, and one store said, you know, no, no, we're not interested. Um, and so with 10 out of 11, I was like, well, maybe, maybe this is something. Yeah. And I thought... I don't really care what I'm selling. I just want to give back. I yeah. just want to start to do some work that could be meaningful to give my brother a name outside of just being a drug addict. Okay. And not to sidetrack too much, but that's something that carries such an ugly stigma. And he was so much more than that. I mean, he was an author and he was so funny and he was so intelligent. He was just 
he was awesome. He was yeah. my best friend. There was no one I enjoyed spending time with more. And when you die as a drug addict and you have that battle behind you, that's what people remember. Yeah. Matt the drug addict. And that was not going to happen if I had anything to do with it. And so my entire goal was to start this fund with his name so that his name could live on as so many good things that he was. And he embodied those good things. Um, so getting back to the story, I thought, okay, if people are going to buy this, that's how I can do it. Yeah. I can launch my fund. I called it the Matt Tuna Make a Difference Fund. I can give a portion of every sale back. And then we can start giving to these 501c3s and we can start making an impact. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of how it all began. Um, how were your profit margins in the first couple months? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't know what a profit <laughs> margin was. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. It was the kind of thing that this was, this was not launched to make money. Yeah. And there was no strong business plan behind it. Um, what I had was the will and not the skill. Yeah. And I'm still learning. I mean, this many years later, I, there are still so many things that I, you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. But profit margins and how to run a company and how to balance books and how to make sure that everything was going into the margins that we needed to be aware of so far from the goal. Yeah. So far from the goal. So Todd and I committed $6,000. And we said, you know, we're not going to go back on that. That's yeah. what we have. At the time, it was what we had saved for our, our unborn child's college. <laughs> she better get a scholarship. Yeah. Um, Came out with a tennis racket in her hand, right? That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, um, so you still sew every day. Um, <laughs> no. um, when did you make your first hire? So you started the company in May 2005. Um, Give or take. Yeah, it was officially like the business license. It was January. Okay. But we didn't really go to market until June okay. or July. Um, and I realized really quickly because we went to our first market, one of the stores, it was the Milky Way here in Charlotte, said, you're on to something and we believe in this and we want to introduce you to a showroom in Atlanta. Yeah. And that was really the launch of the business because I didn't understand the wholesale world, but wholesale was where we needed to be to mm -hmm. do the volume to have some impactful change. And so we went down and we were in this showroom and we had a table. I mean, it may have been a three foot by three foot round yeah. table. Yeah. And we had all our products on it. And I thought, if we come out of this show and 10 more accounts are interested, maybe we're on to something. And we came out of that show and we had 57 wholesale orders. Wow. And that was the wake up point that said, I certainly cannot sew this by myself. Yeah. And so it was a process like anything in life. And it was a painful process where I would drop off fabric to three different home seamstresses and I would tell them what to make. But and there was then, no Etsy back then. How did you no find three Etsy. different homes? How did you find You know, three one of my good friends' sisters who lived in Lincolnton, so I'm driving to Lincolnton, North Carolina yeah. every week. Um, for drop off and pick up, she was a seamstress, and then she had some friends that okay. were. And it was just kind of word of mouth that I need this help. And um, what happened was they were all great seamstresses in their own right, but if if you're not making all the products and you don't have someone in quality assurance, then things get a little bigger. Or they find a better way to sew it than I told them to sew it, but it's still not the same as the product somebody else is making down the street. Yeah. And so we quickly learned that's not going to be the way that we can build a successful brand and keep these sales going. And so we went, um, fortunately, North Carolina still has some manufacturing left in it. It does. And it was, it was tricky to find, but not impossible. The trickiest part was I was coming in and saying, can you make 10 of this bib? 
pen of this bib. Here's my fabric. Nobody wants that. They can't make money that yeah. way. So we actually had to really scale at that point more quickly than we wanted to because the least amount they'd make might be 100 per skew. Yeah. So we ended up finding some manufacturers. I was still doing the driving. The thought of shipping things just seemed so expensive. It was coming to my bonus room. Okay. Todd and I would stay up literally until like 3 a.m. And we would pack boxes and we would ship and I would cry. And he was like, we can do this. Yeah. We can do it. I mean, the only reason we're still in business is because of Todd, because he truly is the best cheerleader in the world. Um, but it was, I, I, I just wanted to throw in the towel. And about two years later. So this is 2007, 2008? Yeah. Okay. I said, if we don't have a distribution center by the holidays, if we don't have someone doing all the picking, packing, shipping, invoicing that, I'm done. Because there's no way that we can keep staying up till 3 a.m. There's no way that we can do any of this. Yeah. And um, don't you know, it was like December 17th, we signed a contract. There you go. To work with the same distribution center we've been with them the whole time. And that just, that was kind of my first hire. Yeah. Um, we didn't have an employee, but we had a team, a 3PL, that could um, help take so much of that workload off of us. And then it freed us up to focus on the things that, that could really build the business into a differentiated brand in a pretty crowded industry. So this was 2008, you do distribution. Yeah. Um, so 2009, then you know, 2008 was a great economic year, by the way. Um, I'm just kidding. That was mm -hmm. the year of the Great Recession. Um, so 2009, you kind of start off, you've got distribution center, you've got manufacturing here in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you've gone from selling 10 at a time to what is, what does the business look like in 2009? So some crazy things happened in actually the first year and a half, which is what pushed us to need a distribution center. Um, got the most random blind email of my life. I'm terrible with dates, so I know you're going to ask me what year, but I, I want to say it was the end of 2007. Okay. Um, but it, it was from Target, and it was from the Target Innovation Team, and it was a two-liner that said, we found your brand, we love what you stand for, your products would be a good fit, can you come up and meet with us in Minneapolis? And so I called the number. that's exactly what you would expect the, oh, yeah. the yeah, totally. to come from, from Target, right? I mean, we still have garage shelving in our bonus room, yeah. shipping all these things out. We still hadn't transferred fully to the distribution center. And I'm like, um, okay. So I, of course, call the number, and she's out for holiday break at the time. And I was like, there's no way this is true. I mean, yeah. I didn't know a ton about the Internet, but I knew that people fished for yeah. things and all that. So she comes back early January, and she calls me back, and she says, yeah, can you come out next week? I was like, for what? Yeah. I mean, literally, what do you want? And she said, well, just bring what you have. And it was, it was one of those moments where I thought, how can this be true? This can't be true. Yeah. So I got on that plane with my little bag of tricks, and I kissed my hus husband goodbye. And I'm like, I think someone is going to pick me up in one of those windowless vans. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's happening but I think I have to go, yeah. you know? And I went, and I went to Target headquarters, and I got my stuff out, and they were like, yeah, we'll take all that. And it doesn't happen that way. You yeah. know, I have 
I have, what, 12 other years of experience under my belt now to tell you it does not happen that way. That was the biggest fluke of my life. But what they were doing was they were doing a parent, inventor, end cap. Okay. And so they wanted it to be all parent um, launched products. And then they really specifically loved that we had to give that component to ours because it really wasn't something that you saw a lot of back then. Um, By no means am I claiming to be a pioneer in it, but it truly wasn't something, that whole double bottom line of businesses, that wasn't happening much 12 years ago or so. So anyways, um, we did. We launched into Target, and it was a subset of stores. I think it was about 500. But we were on this parent inventor end cap with a bunch of other brands. We were supposed to be there three months, and it was supposed to rotate out, and we ended up staying on for 18 months. Wow. And it was a huge taste of what big business could look like and an even bigger taste of what we could do if we could continue to land that business, how we could just give back and have programs that really mattered. Um, I will tell you, in that first meeting, she said, I just want to make sure you're EDI compliant. And I, At what I, point in time did your jaw drop and say, what does that mean? Well, of course not there. I, the answer had to be yes. And for the record, I'm a very honest person <laughs> normally. But I was like, well, this must be something that's possible. Yeah. But I had no idea what it meant. And I said, of course. Yeah, of, of course. course we are. What else What yeah. else do you want us to be? Don't be silly. Yeah. So I remember calling... Back to uh, Todd after that meeting. Well, I don't think I had internet connectivity. I was like, you need to find out what this means because I just promised that we are. And that's how much I didn't know. I just didn't know. So that launched to a whole new level. Then we had to go find some international manufacturing, and we actually went to South America first with it. Um, But at that same time, Gap reached out, and they were launching a home initiative, which was a registry program. And they wanted us to do diaper bags. And I remember that call. And I said, we don't do diaper bags. And they're like, yeah, but you have the mission. This was when their red initiative was really big. Yeah. And they really wanted brands that would give back as well. And they said, we, you can because you have that mission and, and we know you can do it. I am not kidding when I say I stapled together a diaper bag because they called me on a Wednesday and they needed it on Friday. Yeah. I went and I bought fabric. I stapled it together and I overnighted it. And the overnight fee felt felt like the biggest obstacle in yeah. the world. I think it was probably a hundred bucks or yeah. something to send to San Fran. Um, but we did it and they called and they said, yeah, this will work. <laughs> well, that's not what I wanted to hear because I don't know how to get them made. And that's one of those challenges because um, one of the reasons where we do a lot in China now is because they have full package where you send something over, stapled or not, and they can source everything and put it all together. And here we tried to keep the business here and the price just couldn't work. So Gap actually gave us their manufacturer, their bag manufacturer, and made that introduction. And that that was our first foot in the door in China manufacturing. Okay. And you've been there basically ever since. In China? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have. We um, we kept products made in the U.S. until 2017. We had one product that held on. Um, and that's something that was really important to me. I mean, I came from northwest Pennsylvania. My, my family grew up working in mills and um, factories. And I really did want to keep the work here. But it's a challenge that yeah. we have right now in order to, to really play in the price points that are demanded by the consumer and the economy, it's something that I personally haven't figured a way around. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's definitely a challenge, right? It's, it, it, um, it is. You it aren't is. the only person that struggles with it. Yeah. 
yeah. But that's not ideal. Yeah. You know, I guess that's my point. That's not something we're not proudly made in China. Yeah. We are proudly designed in the U.S. We employ a lot of people in the U.S., um, but we are manufactured in China. Um, what is it? What does it look like today in Charlotte? Um, is it is it you and the three seamstresses still, or who who else is, um, or where where is the team? Is the team in Charlotte or? Yeah, um, we do have a team in Charlotte. So our headquarters uh, is in South Charlotte, actually in Matthews, right okay. across the border. Yeah. We're in a little loft there, and we have eight employees. Okay. Um, and that is where all of all of the design work and strategy and sales happens. Mm-hmm. But we have a much bigger team. We work with uh, 94 sales reps across the U.S. We're covered in every state at this point. And then we have a team at our distribution center that's like family. Yeah. I mean, they treat us so well. We go and we have holiday parties with them every every season. Um, and from it just depends on who we need out there at the time, the flux of the season. But I know at the holiday parties, about 25 people show up. Yeah. That could be the Chick-fil-A and donuts. Yeah. But about a team of 12 consistently is working with us there. And then we have a lot of freelance people mm-hmm. for photographers and graphic designers and that kind of thing. So um, it's not just me and three seamstresses, thank goodness, anymore. And um, I actually have a team of some of the smartest women. It's all women. Yeah. And they just they, they force us to be better and smarter and faster and it's amazing I'm just I'm pretty obsessed with my team that's cool that's awesome what can it be well I'm hoping that it can be the toms of the baby industry I mean that actually was what was in the start Charlotte article and that's because she asked me the same question and I just love that model I love that when you think of toms you think about what they're doing with their brand even before their brand and they have ingrained us ingrained sorry that in us to the point that um I took my daughter to Nordstrom and she got some Toms this was probably three or four years ago and um she loved them and she only wanted Toms because somehow in her little nine-year-old mind at that time she was saving kids in Africa you know she was giving them shoes she knew that not because I had told her I don't know where this came from well the shoes fell apart after like three wears and I said you know we're going to take these back to Nordstrom and she just started bawling. And I was like, why are you crying? We're going to get you some new shoes. And she said, well, they're going to take the shoes from the kids in Africa. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that is some powerful marketing yeah. that my nine-year-old has such a heart for what the brand is doing that she would rather wear. She wouldn't give me back the shoes. Yeah. She wore them. She taped them. She glued them. There were holes in them. She didn't care because in her mind, she was not taking those shoes back from that kid. And that's kind of the mentality that I want. I want people to think first and foremost about all the kids that we're feeding. And I want them to love our products. They wouldn't buy them if they didn't love them. I mean, there are tons of studies to show that the give back matters, but only if the quality is there and the design's there too. Um, But I really want people to think of us that way. And so what I see is I, I, I want us to be a household brand. I want us to be a brand that... Three out of every four households sees as the Toms of Baby products. Um, what does it take to get there from here? Um. <laughs> Money. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's, yeah, that's a great question. Um, we have the team in place that can make it happen for sure. We could use a, a few other members as we grow. 
Um, but it's one of those things that's scaling. We have a large listener base of um, probably middle to late age bald bald men. <laughs> um, Come on over. Yeah. We don't discriminate. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. No, I, I, it really is this idea of scaling that um, that's our biggest obstacle right now. The but growth is there. You're ready to take that next step, though, aren't you? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I can't say it yet because it doesn't happen until November, um, but we're launching into a massive retailer, biggest PO we've ever seen. Um, it's starting to work. People are starting to notice the brand. And I should back up a little because I told you this story about 18 months in, Target, Gap, all that. Well, then the recession crushed that. Yeah. So that level of growth and business did not happen for a good eight years. I mean, it was... It was the land, it started out milk and plenty, and then it was a complete desert for a while, and we were just holding on to hold on. But that time period, that time period of um, kind of stagnation, you grew, so not complete stagnation. We did grow, but But, but it allowed you to learn a lot, right? Mm-hmm. It allowed you to start to prepare for it again. That's a great Where point. you weren't three seamstresses in a That's right. UPS store. That's right. We had to completely change the way we did business. Our model had to change drastically. Um, We had to invest in systems. We had to invest in people. We had to invest in just me learning how to be in an industry that I I didn't know a lot about. So education. And it was a gift in that sense because um, every failure has just been amazing in terms of a lesson. Yeah. And I actually believe that with my girls now. I mean, all the time I just ask them. I heard Sarah Blakeney was raised this way and I copied it from her. But she would come home and sit around the dinner table and her dad would be like, how'd you fail today? And if they didn't have a good answer for that, he was disappointed. Yeah. Because in his mind, failing was the best learning mechanism. And I think that's what happened to us in those years. I mean, We didn't necessarily fail because of internal things. We failed because we can't control the economy. And we also can't control the regulations in the children's industry. So at the same time that the economy was pounding us from the left, all the regulations and testing standards, they were having a massive overhaul, which is all good. I want to create the safest products. We do create the safest products. But at the same time, that's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, we had to get up to speed on all of this and change all of our, our methods for testing, and we had to retest things. And um, and we were never going to skimp on that, but it was one of those things where we literally were just being pounded. Yeah, no, I bet. So, um, well, this is so this has been fun. So we're, we're coming up on our 30-minute slide. Okay. Um, so I know it feels like it was just two minutes. I mean, maybe um, 32 seconds. Yeah, there you go. Um, if, really fun kind of getting to this point I do think that you know focusing the next part is so we've talked so much about the building aspect yeah. of it um, excited to kind of focus the next next episode on how does it go from here what were some of those lessons you learned um, how you found out about the term profit margin and a couple <laughs> other things sure. and how that's driving the business as you go forward so thanks again for carving out you know more than an hour with me certainly enjoyed the first session and looking forward to the next one Michelle thank you William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. 
Seacrest Blakey and Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.